warriors in their own words is brought to you by The Honor Project, committed to putting the heroes of our nation on record. This presentation is dedicated to the brave men and women of the United States Armed Forces. John Nicely was a sergeant in the U.S. Marine Corps during the brutal Pacific Island campaigns of World War II. We met up with him at a reunion of the 2nd Marine Division in 1994, and he shared his vivid personal memories of frontline combat. It all began for John Nicely on December 7, 1941. I was in St. Louis. We were in a uh, movie house and came out of the movie house and someone said, Pearl Harbor has been bombed. And I said, where in the hell is Pearl Harbor? At the time, uh, I had no idea where Pearl Harbor was or the, the part that uh, Pearl Harbor played in the future of America or America at that time. So from there on, uh, I was anxious as most young men were at the time, but uh, I didn't do anything about it until uh, finally I just said, hey, they need me and uh, I want to do it. So I went down and uh, joined the Marine Corps. This was in 1943, and uh, I discussed it with my wife first, and uh, she said, if that's what you want to do, I have at it. Nicely saw his first action in the battle for the island of Saipan on June 15, 1944. He well remembers waiting on a transport ship the night before the assault. We were packed in like sardines, one, one bunk right on top of the other, and uh, it was hot, everyone was sweaty, uh, there, was, there was nervousness, but I think there was uh, anxiety. There may have been fear, but I didn't see it in, in anyone's nature or anyone's expression or voice. And, uh, but no, I didn't see any fear on the part of any of the men because they pretty well knew what was going on and, and the majority of them had been in combat before. They'd been in uh, on uh, Guadalcanal or Tarawa and uh, this, this was another job to do. The Marines hit the beach inside amphibious tanks known as Amtraks. We went into uh, Amtraks uh, that roll out of the, the bow of a LST. And uh, I was in the first wave, in fact, the lead tank going into Saipan. And uh, I had missed Tarawa. Many of our co-workers were at Tarawa and uh, I knew the problems that they had had at uh, Tarawa, but the lead tank as we were going in, um, I was standing up and I was looking at the tanks and the shells falling around me, and just to our right, uh, I saw a, a shell land right in the center of a tank and completely obliterated that, that tank and the bodies flying around. I said, oh man, these, these people are playing for keeps. We went ahead and hit the beach, but we couldn't get up on the beach because of the heavy foliage right in front. So we were in the water, 
and uh, the first thing that flashed through my mind is, looks like we're going through another Tarawa from what I hear. And uh, different ones were going over the side and you step up on a box, that's a, a toolbox to get over the side of, a, of an Amtrak. And uh, another fellow and I was hit that box at the same time. And we all wanted to get out of that Amtrak, but uh, I hit him on the bottom and uh, said, go ahead, get out of here. And his name was Klimko, after all of these years. He went up, he stepped on the side of the uh, Amtrak, and I saw him turn and twist, uh, and, but I thought he went ahead and jumped off into the water. When I got up and started to jump off, I looked down, and there he was floating in the water. So I almost jumped on him, but at the last moment I was able to push myself past him. And when I landed down in the water, I grabbed him by his collar and uh, pulled him up on the beach. We were receiving very heavy machine gun fire at the time. And I pulled him up on the beach and uh, I was trying to push sand up in front of him and me too to be able to return some fire. And I remember that when I looked over, he had sand in his eyes and he was looking at me. But as a true Marine, he was still holding on to his M1 because we're taught in boot camp. Man, you sleep with that with that rifle. That you wherever that rifle goes, you had better go because that's your wife. Anyway, he was still holding on to that, but every time his heart would beat, blood would come out of his, his mouth. And I figured then that he was hit in the lungs, so there's no no more I could do for him. And then my next recollection is I'm in the borderline of the bushes. And I'm in a foxhole, and there's a heavy Japanese machine gun in there. Their, their guns are different than ours. They have metal belts that they put into their, their guns. And uh, I was in there, and then I saw one of my cohorts go by, and I, I was a BAR man at the time, which is a semi, uh, which is an automatic rifle if you want. Anyway, uh, I remember taking off with him, and uh, then the lieutenant that we had, he was shot up, and uh, from there on, it was just one hell of a fight all the way through. So for 13 days, uh, it was just daily combat. What's in a Marine's inventory if Well, you know, when you first start out uh, and in training, they have all of this paraphernalia that you are supposed to carry whenever you go in, whenever you make a landing. And it consists of two or three pairs of socks and two or three shirts and some dungarees. It consists of, of uh, ammunition of different kinds, uh, depending on the, the Marine, whether, uh, as an example, a BAR man would carry his BAR, he'd carry a belt uh, of I think it's six magazines of ammunition plus one in his, in his uh, uh, BAR. He has a bipod on the front and everything is all set because this is the way that he was trained to use, use it. Then he boards the LST and uh, then he boards the Amtrak headed in for the beach. He gets rid of all of this weight, he throws the, the bipod overboard. He gets rid of all of this surplus uh, clothing. Uh, he keeps the grenades, he keeps cigarettes, and he keeps food. And of course water. He always keeps the water. 
and uh, that's all he wants. He's not there to, to, for a fashion show, he's there to get on with the war. But all of that extra paraphernalia, they don't use it. And, uh, but it's so nice to use in, uh, in training because you can fall down and the bipod sets up there and you can sit there and pull that thing off. But baby, that's not the way it is. When you're uh, in the brush, you're, you're within 15, 20 feet is where you're firing, or 30 or 40 feet. And uh, you don't need any bipod on there to get hung up on a brush pile uh, or to fall and have that thing hit you in the face. You know how to use your weapon. So we used it. We would got rid of all of that paraphernalia and it worked out very well that way. And a BAR was, you could fire it better with a strap over your shoulder and holding it and going along and firing in burst than dropping down with that bipod and firing one or two shots at a time. It was great for what it was designed for. And it was even great to use as a weapon because I always wanted to carry one because it was a real powerhouse. So your primary objective when you hit the beach is? Secure the beach, we thought, uh, and move in, move, move in. We had an observation point that we were supposed to meet the first day, but we received so much heavy fire that uh, we only got in about maybe 300, 400 yards. And uh, the observation post was a, a hill, maybe 500 yards in and uh, maybe a couple of hundred feet high. But it did have command of the beach. But we didn't make it, and uh, we lost quite a few men that first day. And the best of my re recollection, the group that was supposed to uh, invade uh, Guam a short time after we went into uh, Saipan, they were held in reserve because we were having so many casualties. But the first day, uh, whoever coined the term war as hell hit it right on the head because there was artillery. Men were good men. We were losing good men, but well, that's part of the job too. When we got off the beach, I remember heavy machine gun fire. Uh, our ships and our air force did a, a tremendous job in silencing the the mortar fire and the heavy artillery after the first and second nights. As we moved in, uh, it was crawling part of the time, taking fire, giving fire. And the Japanese were a very formidable foe, and they gave a good account of themselves. But uh, I feel that the Marines just gave a little better account of themselves, too. But anyway, I can recall trying to, to uh, get up this one small hill, and uh, there was mortar fire coming in on us from on the other side of the hill and we were losing men and we had snipers up above us. And we were losing men and I can still hear the uh, platoon leader at that time uh, calling in for mortar fire. God give us some mortar fire. We need some help here. But uh, he kept moving forward and of course we kept moving with him. Uh, that is very vivid in my mind. I can recall down the line uh, of having mortar fire when we thought that the Japanese were uh, out of it. We thought that they had, had the, the given us their best and lost, but they were at the far end of the island called a place called Marpy Point. 
and we were going downhill. We had dug in the night before, and uh, I still had the first platoon sergeant with us, and uh, a good man. And we had had our third or fourth platoon leader, and they were foxholing together just to my right. And during the night, they started coming in with mortar fire, and a mortar landed right in their foxhole and uh, killed Sergeant Nichols. Almost blew apart this uh, second lieutenant. Uh, his first campaign, he was a, he was a boot. But, um, well, anyway, uh, uh, we picked up uh, the pieces, I'll put it that way. And uh, you pray and you curse. And you want to get up and do something, but it was night. There's nothing you can do but sit there and take it. And uh, just hope for daylight so that you can at least move forward and do something about it. And this was the, the 12th or 13th day on the front line. And there are so many uh, incidents in between. But I remember this because on that morning, here came some fresh uniforms in, fresh Marines in. I thought, where, where are these boys from? And they were our relief. And uh, all of us, every man there that had started D-Day was sweaty, dirty. Uh, they had uh, the salt from their salt tablets in their uniforms, and they had blood splattered on them. They were thin, they needed a shave, and they were anxious to, to get the hell off the line. And here came these fresh troops, and they said, joyfully, how's it going, guys? And we had dead people out there in front of them. And when they saw these dead people, suddenly their expression changed and their attitude changed. It changed just as it did mine when I saw that first Amtrak blow up and those bodies scatter around heard someone say, hey, this is for real, and it was for real. It was almost a, a nightly affair to engage in some kind of a firefighter, at least. When you're, when you're sitting in a foxhole at night, you can't really see. You cannot, you can hear things going on. But in, to be very candid, it may be a, a dog, it may be a, whatever it is, though, if it moves, you shoot it. And that's what we did. And uh, if you're on the front line and one person fires, that whole line opens up and fires. Whether they see or, or hear something or not, they are going to fire to protect their, their front side. And, uh, but one thing about it, uh, we're still here to talk about it, whether it's right or wrong. Does anybody get asleep in a foxhole? Yes you do. Supposedly an hour on and an hour off, but it doesn't work that way. Because by the time that the hour is up and you wake the person up and you make sure that person is awake, is awake then 15 minutes have elapsed. So then you sleep for about 45 minutes and then that person wakes you and then they're awake. So you, you're awake about uh, uh, an hour and 15 minutes and you try to sleep 45 minutes until the war breaks out again and then you're awake for the rest of the night.
almost every night there was uh, some enemy activity that uh, tried to infiltrate our, our lines or get behind us. I remember the first night uh, I was carrying, I carried back a wounded man, a young man by the name of Thompson, carried him back and the artillery started coming in and the uh, a doctor said, you stay here and protect this camp. And uh, I stayed there and the Japanese were coming in from behind us. And uh, they had gone out into the ocean and was coming in and they did try to, and, and did, infiltrate our lines from the back. Um, I had a BAR blown up uh, from my hands, a little shrapnel in my forearm, but uh, fortunately that was the extent of it. But uh, they were infiltrating the area, throwing grenades, and we couldn't see who we were firing at at the time, but uh, all we could do is kind of lay back and uh, listen and fire at what we heard. Saipan was an island, uh, uh, if I remember correctly, about uh, 12, 13 miles long. It went from the uh, beach up to the top of a hill or a mountain called Tapachau. And this, the, it was a ridge, and uh, it was heavy in, in jungle and, and uh, foliage and trees of different kinds. Heavy, it was very difficult to get through. But uh, getting up to Tapachau, it was, you're fighting uphill all the time. And once you got up into the top, it was just heavy brush. And you just, you really can't see where you're going. Uh, you can only guess as you're going along. And uh, there was a lot of praying by everyone that, that at least they would get to see something or someone before they would get shot themselves. Uh, at least that's the, way I, that's the way I felt, that I wanted to, to see something that uh, I could fire back on, shoot back at. I remember I was digging a foxhole and suddenly everything went black on me and I heard someone uh, holler, uh, uh, Corman, the Sarge is hit. But I'd been made a Sarge by this time. And uh, when I woke up, I was in the uh, field hospital, and uh, I hadn't been hit, but I had contracted a fever that uh, just knocked me out. And so they kept me there for three days, but I did get out in time to get back to uh, get into the last skirmish that we had, which was the last big push that the Japanese had, the last big bonsai that they had. And that came very close to being hand-to-hand, -hand. but they didn't break through our lines, and uh, that was pretty much secured. And then we kind of settled back and waited until the next campaign, which was Tinian, which was a, a week or so later. What kind of enemy did you face? Uh, a very tough enemy, uh, well-trained, aggressive, willing to die, wanting to die for their emperor. And uh, we just did our best to help them, sent them to the happy hunting grounds. But they were tough, they were mean. And uh, they had, of course, told the local inhabitants that uh, we were cannibalistic 
Uh, under no circumstances uh, do you surrender. Where'd you go out to We had a little island called Tenian, about uh, seven or eight miles from us. And uh, when uh, we hit there, there was very little firepower against us. And we thought that, uh, oh, we found an easy one. Until we were a few miles inland. I can remember uh, going through an airfield and seeing uh, one Japanese airplane after another on the airstrip. And uh, we thought that we were just going to walk through the island. Then when we got into uh, some rough country, by rough country I mean those islands are just coral, just one big coral hill after another. And uh, we started receiving heavy uh, fire from the uh, hills, from the cliffs. And tanks were called in. And uh, we would follow these tanks and fire and, and uh, direct the fire of the uh, uh, tanks onto where we saw the uh, machine gun fire, the mortar fire coming from. And uh, right there is the closest I came to, to being wiped out because I saw this uh, machine gun fire coming at me. Uh, it was coming, hitting up the dirt, and I fell over into one of the ditches. Uh, and the uh, tanks that was right by me, it turned and I could see this tank moving in on me. And at the last moment, the driver of the tank must have seen me. And he turned that tank on a dime. And that tank was within a foot of me, the tread. And uh, man, I said all my goodies right, right at that time. But uh, the tank turned, it did miss me. And we went ahead with the war then. But uh, Tenian was, was no snap. Did you carry demolitions personally, or, or demolitions? Yeah, I carried uh, uh, grenades, I carried uh, uh, trinitrotoluene, which is a TNT, but we all had different types of grenades. Uh, you had fire grenades, you had smoke grenades. Well, not all, but uh, I carried some in my, my pack. But we all tried to carry grenades uh, because of the night. Grenades would come in very handy if you heard something in front of you, and you couldn't see it, a grenade came in very handy. And uh, so you could just throw the grenade out in that direction. Or if you had uh, this one time when the Japanese were making their last heavy bonsai, as they call it, uh, charge, uh, the grenades came in very handy because we were throwing those just as fast as we could and still firing. hear about the being caves and dugouts and all that. Can you more, a little more specific on what sort of actual? Well, if you can imagine a big coral, piece of coral, and uh, there would be a cave there. Maybe it was man-made, but there were caves, and some of them you could drive big trucks into. But the majority of them were small, uh, by small, I mean men could stand up and walk in them. And uh, they had so many of the caves that uh, were interlocking. And uh, you could go into one, and I didn't try to follow them all the way through because 
around that next corner, you never knew someone may be waiting for you. So the best thing to do is just close it up. Uh, it's what we usually would do. But the caves were on every one of the islands. And we, we received so, so much harassment from them because they could shoot and hide. Why did they send you in the caves? They didn't send us in. Whatever you did, you did more or less on your own volition. I wouldn't send any of my men in without leading them in. Uh, and I didn't go in too far because there was no reason for it. Uh, just go in, close them up. There are so many instances about uh, Tenian, and the word Tenian uh, may be obscure in the minds of the rest of the world. But to the guys that were there, Tinian was a, was a hell of a big country. And it was a big war. And especially the, the guys that died there. And the mothers and fathers of the men that died there know where Tinian is. John Nicely continued fighting from island to island. Later in the war, Nicely recalls having a grim premonition. You talk to different Marines and they will tell you that they know of people, of Marines, that got the feeling they're going to get hit. They're not going to make it through the next campaign. And uh, after we got back from Okinawa the second time, I woke up one morning about 2.30, 2, 2.30 in the morning, and uh, something told me, this is your last campaign. You're not going to make it through the next one. And I knew I was going to get killed the next campaign. And I had talked to men that I'd had with me in previous campaigns that had said, hey, I'm going to get it. And I'd say, ah, you're not going to get it. That's your imagination. But they got it. And uh, one of them was the first, I think, the first man killed on the island of Saipan. This fellow Klimko that I mentioned earlier. Uh, he told me that uh, he was, uh, one night he had uh, guard duty and I was making the rounds. And he said, uh, Sarge, I had the feeling I'm going to get it. I'm not going to come through this. And he had been on, on the canal, also on Tarawa. And I said, ah, oh, no, Klimko, you're going to make it. It's going to be all right. Get that out of your mind. But uh, that morning that I woke up, I knew what he was talking about. So when Jan Japan capitulated, uh, I was very elated about the whole thing. I'd been uh, uh, put up for a field commission, and I immediately made sure that uh, I didn't stay in the Marine Corps any longer. I was wanting to get home, get home to my little bride. So you, you, don't, you don't forget some of those things. We were on a, getting prepared then to invade Japan. And we were told, okay guys, your, your next campaign is your last one. It'll be the big one. And it'll be a good one. But uh, it'll be your last big campaign. And I felt we knew, all knew it was going to be Japan. We didn't know where we were going to land in Japan as a unit. But uh, we were anxious to get it, get it on with until I woke up that morning knowing that I was going to die. 
And then I wasn't anxious to go anywhere. But Japan did capitulate. Um, we were all elated about that. So what, what is it like to actually set foot on enemy territory like Good question. It was one of, uh, for me, of elation because I wasn't fighting my way in. Once I learned the language, the, uh, I found out that the Japanese people were just like us. They were a very conscientious, hard-working society. Uh, they had been misled by their, their leaders. And uh, I was invited to, uh, to dinner at their different homes. Uh, a few times it was a little embarrassing because some of the guests there were Japanese soldiers who had no affection whatsoever for the Marine Corps. And I can understand that. And the pride of the Japanese people, especially the Japanese soldiers. And here to have a Marine sitting in the home of one of their friends are the, maybe the home of a girlfriend. That just didn't set too well with the Japanese soldier. But um, because they are such gracious people, the host always intervened and uh, kept calm in the house. Nicely and his unit entered the devastated city of Nagasaki just 25 days after the nuclear blast. When I first heard that they had dropped a bomb on Japan and Japan had capitulated, it was late at night. And of course, we were all elated about that, but someone had said something about this bomb that was so powerful that none of us could imagine such power because we were accustomed to the uh, grenades and the mortars and the TNT uh, that we'd put together to, to blow up things. And it was hard to believe until we got to Nagasaki. And here was this city completely wiped out. It was nothing but rubbles of concrete. There were cornerstones of buildings around, but no buildings to sit on them. And as you moved through the city, in the center where the bomb dropped, it was nothing. But you moved to the outer limits of the city and you saw how the buildings were starting to come together. As you moved forward, the buildings that you did see eventually were tilted very much on their side. But the farther out that you went, the power of the bomb lost its power and they started to straightening up. But you got, it seemed like a mile from the center of, the, of where the bomb dropped and you'd see 10 by 10s just cracked like they were just a matchstick. And uh, the homes there, the personal homes, were very flimsily built. But the buildings, the concrete and the steel, were still just uh, were there. And I can remember seeing the single, single gauge uh, railway tracks just twisted as if you'd take a, a paper clip, just kind of twist them up. And they were just twisted as they'd go along. And I didn't realize the power of that bomb until I walked through Nagasaki. And it was a little scary at the time. I was, oh boy, I'm glad we got that first.
is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper? A woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver. I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, void, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. We were treated beautifully. The uh, Japanese people completely capitulated because their their god said, "Hey, we've had it. Uh, let's let's stop the fighting. We're not going to fight anymore. We're not going to kill any more Marines. We're not going to kill any more soldiers or sailors." And they capitulated. They were uh, subservient to their god, to their emperor, and. Uh, as a result, when he said, turn in all of your weapons, they turned them all in. And uh, we started picking them up as we went around. And it was really a very pleasant experience for me to be in Japan and to meet the people, to get better acquainted with them. And uh, I have a warm feeling for, for the Japanese people today, not for the warlords, because I think they were all power hungry and, and looking out uh, for themselves and not for the people. But the, the men and the women, the, uh, the children there, beautiful people. Uh, no, not really. I wanted to get home to my little bride, so uh, I was anxious to, to uh, come home. And uh, when uh, we got to Sasebo, Japan, and uh, we were given unlimited access to the slop chute, as we call it, this is a beer hall, uh, we were given unlimited uh, access to the slop chute. Uh, instead of buying beer by the can, we'd buy it by the case. Put it under our, under our sacks, under our cots. And uh, we drank beer, morning, noon, and night. And primed ourselves for the invasion of the United States. And it was a beautiful experience. And I enjoyed it. I wanted to leave, but I left with warm feelings. Was coming home. Uh, when uh, I was coming home, when we boarded ship, uh, we first ran into a heavy squall and uh, we were out in the ocean, uh, the Sea of China. And uh, I remember that it was so bad, the uh, ship was listing so badly that uh, they ran some lines, ropes, ran the lines from the bow to the stern and called everyone up on deck and they were holding on to these lines and because the ship was rocking so badly made some of the men seasick and uh, they regurgitated and of course uh, the vomit was on the deck and this made it even worse and it was raining and blowing and I thought oh this is a hell of a way to die but um, one thing about it I'm going to hold on to this rope but I guess I'd have gone down with that rope but we held on to the rope and uh, under the line and uh, finally the uh, rain they, uh, washed the deck and uh, it calmed down and then we headed home. And I made sure that I had a case of beer under my sack again and uh, I enjoyed it every, I guess every knot that that ship made, I had, had a can of beer. So when I got back, uh, went into 
Pendleton, Camp Pendleton in, in California, uh, Oceanside, California, and uh, we, were to, we were to be indoctrinated to become civilians again because Mrs. Uh, Roosevelt said that uh, we should be indoctrinated to become civilians because we were too wild just to turn loose on society again. That didn't set too well with us, but anyway, we were back home. And uh, I was able to get a Quonset hut there at uh, Camp Pendleton, and my wife came out to visit me. And uh, she found out I wasn't too wild, I guess. But uh, she, we spent about two weeks together there at uh, Camp Pendleton. And uh, then I was discharged, and we went back to St. Louis. And was the America you came home to different than the America you left? I think the world changed. I don't think the people were the same, were the same because the Rosie the Riveter had uh, come out of the, the house, come out of the kitchen, and gone to work. And I start, think that was the starting of the revolution for women to be working. And uh, I grew up thinking, you open the doors for the ladies, you look out for the ladies, you go to work and you provide for the ladies, and you provide for the children. And then suddenly, here are these people, these ladies are working, and they're bringing home the paychecks. And I couldn't understand that for a long while. And when I did understand it, I thought it was a good idea. I thought it was great. But uh, I never did want my wife to work because I was from the old school. And, and uh, I still look out for her. So she's my baby. 54 years later. Okay. Now we're going to talk about your dad. Oh, hey. That's my pride and joy, I You're guess. You're going to have to go with that story because I, yeah. I don't know how it all works. Okay, well, I'll tell you one of the most interesting stories you've ever heard. Great. Okay. We'll all right. Take it away. Okay. Well, uh, my dad's real name was uh, William Forrest Nicely. And uh, he was one of the wildest, meanest, most honorary, most loving, kindest man in the world to me. And uh, we had a rapport that very few people have had. And um, some way or another, we would get together. And uh, usually, when we got together, he would get me in trouble. If you can imagine for a moment my thinking that he is in Canada as a gambling shill, and he did love to gamble, and I'm on the island of Saipan after just getting back from uh, a campaign in uh, Okinawa. We came back from the uh, island of Okinawa, and uh, we were on the standby to go to uh, Iwo Jima because they had received so many casualties there, and our sea bags were packed, and we were ready. We were standing by to go. We were in our tent. It was about 4 o'clock in the afternoon, and uh, a black man uh, walked into our tent and said, I'm looking for Sergeant Nicely. And I said, well, you're looking right at him. What's on your mind? And he said, well, your daddy is on the other side of the island, and he's aboard ship, and uh, he wants me to come and get you. 
and he gave me just half of this $10 bill to come and get you. And he said, I get the other half when I brought you back. And he has the big half. So I said, well, all right, uh, that sounds all right, but my dad's in Canada, it's not my dad. Oh, yes, it is. And I said, well, why didn't he come over here? He said, because he's under arrest. And I said, now that sounds like him. That sounds more like my dad. So I said, well, tell, him, tell me about it. Well, he's up here and he's, he's this way, he's dark complected and black hair and uh, uh, heavy set, uh, big man, yeah, okay. Then I said, okay, we will go, if I can get permission to go, because I'm on the standby now for Iwo Jima. So I went over to see the skipper and I uh, told him what the story was, and he said, well, we're not gonna leave tonight anyway. So you go on over, because I mentioned I hadn't seen my dad in two and a half years. So he said, you go on and see your dad, but you'll be back here tonight, or else. So we went over to the ship, and when you go aboard a ship, a Marine must know Navy regulations as well as uh, their own regulations, you salute the flag on the stern. You step aboard and you ask permission to come aboard. You ask permission from the officer of the, the deck. And uh, as I was asking permission and saluting this boot uh, ensign, something hit me and it hit me in the fleshy part of my arm and knocked me into this ensign. Now I'm carrying sidearms and and I'm also carrying a K-bar knife. And my first thought was preservation. So I grabbed the uh, ensign and whirled around and threw him into this thing or person that was, was attacking me. Well, it turns out it was my dad. And he just stepped aside and pushed the ensign aside and the ensign fell down. That we came together and we were hugging and we got our feet twisted up and we fall down on the deck. This was a, just a series of, of crazy things happening. And then the whistle started to blowing. They blow whistles when they want people to come out and beat you up. So it seemed like the whole 7th Fleet was on me at the time. But the officer of the day had blown this whistle for people to come and get us under control. The next thing I know, I'm in the brig. Now I wasn't aboard that ship three minutes and he had me in the brig, which was not unusual. I should have known something like this would happen. But in three minutes, it was a record. And I told him, I said, Pops, this, this doesn't make sense. I haven't seen you for two and a half years. We get together and you get me in a brig again. It, it's either, all my life, every time we get together, you either get me in the, thrown in jail or you get me in a damn fight, one or the other. And man, I want to get out of here. I'd rather, I'd rather fight these Japanese than get around you. He, his philosophy was, don't worry about it, son. It's going to work out all right. But I remembered my skipper saying, you be back here tonight. And in the Marine Corps, that means you be back here or no telling what's going to happen to you. And I didn't want to face the firing squad anyway. But anyway, uh, I was concerned. They had taken my firearm, my sidearm away, they would taken my K-bar knife, and I was in, in, in jail, in a brig. I talked to the officer of the day, 
into letting me speak to the captain because I had to get out of there and I had to be back before 10 o'clock that night. When the officer of the day finally said, okay, you can talk to the skipper. So I did get the audience with the skipper and I told him, I said, now you're not going to believe what I'm going to tell you, but I'm going to lay it out here and you're just going to have to separate any truths or from fiction that you want, want to, but this is the truth. And I started to tell him about some of our background, the things that had happened every time we got together. And uh, he said, I can't believe this. If this hadn't have happened on my ship, I wouldn't believe it. You see, my dad was a stowaway on his ship. And dad was under arrest as the reason he couldn't come over to the island to get me. But this was not unusual for him either. So anyway, uh, I finally convinced the skipper that I should get the hell off of his ship and go back to my own outfit. But he told me, you come back anytime you want. And by the way, I had dinner with the skipper that night. He said, will, will you and your dad have dinner with me? I want to hear the rest of this. Well, he didn't hear all of it, but uh, uh, we did enjoy dinner with him. And uh, I was invited to come back to, on his ship again. And I came back the next evening, but uh, several, Months later, I'm taking a patrol out to secure some caves on the island of Okinawa. My dad is supposed to be down on Guam, the last I heard, because he had talked his way out of staying aboard that ship into working over, over the, uh, in the islands where they could use him. But anyway, when I came back off of this patrol, I saw a group of people sitting in my foxhole. And here was this one big guy sitting uh, with his back to me and a group of other people around. And I was just taking off my helmet. I heard this familiar voice say, how are you, boy? I said, oh God, that can't be him. He cannot be up here. But he was up there. And uh, I was delighted to see him, but I was scared. I was frightened for him. And uh, for about uh, a week or 10 days. It was hilarious, the things that, that we went through, because I was trying to protect him, and he didn't give a damn. He just was as careless as, as a person could be, and he thought that he knew all about the war, and uh, that the Marine Corps should listen to him. Well, he soon found out that we weren't going to do that, so I went up to see the skipper, and I told him, I said, Skipper, I want to send my dad back. He doesn't belong up here. And uh, he's liable to get me killed because I'll be looking out after him. And we talked about it, and he told me, he said, Sergeant, I'm not about to do that. This is the greatest morale booster for these men that we can have. He said, in fact, I want you to send your dad up here to see me. So we talked about that. I said, what do you want to see him about? He said, never, that's none of your business. You just sent him up to see me. So I sent him up there. But it so happens that the Skipper has this uh, gin and some uh, grapefruit juice. And they sit up there and booze it up while I'm down here in the foxhole worrying about it. But I wasn't too surprised about that. That's kind of a, the history. I worry and he enjoys his life. But um, for a week he spent there in the foxhole with us. And for the next week or 10 days were the most hilarious times of my, I look back on it, it wasn't hilarious at the time. But every man fell in love with him. After about seven or eight days, we were finally going back aboard LSTs to go back to Saipan to regroup again because we had secured Okinawa. 
and I could see the LST. It was just maybe a half a block away from us. And uh, he was going right along with us, still no, no jacket on. He was just bare on the top. But anyway, uh, we came to a T in the road. And I called the troops to a halt and uh, said, take 10 uh, and I said, will you send my dad up? I want to talk to him. So he came up and I said, Pop, this is the end of the line. You're going to have to go back. No, I'm going back to Saipan with you boys. I said, you're not going back to Saipan, Pop. You're in, in danger. You're, you're putting all of our lives in danger. We all like you. We, we want to look out for you. You may kill us in the process. And I'd appreciate it if you wouldn't give me any more problems. Just go home. So he says, you mean it now, don't you? I said, I mean it. We are not going any farther together. He said, well, when am I going to see you again? Hell, I'm back in St. Louis, I guess. So he said, well, he said, can I go back and say goodbye to my boys? I said, you sure may. And uh, he went down the line, and I saw young Marines cry because he was leaving, and he was hanging, they were hanging swords on him and rifles, and, and he was getting names and addresses to send back to them. And I watched him, we shook hands, and I watched him turn around, and he started down that road, carrying all of this paraphernalia, and there was a dusty, it was a dusty road, and the truck would go by every now and then and obscure him completely. But as he went down this little break in the road, a little ravine, uh, he went out of sight, and uh, I had a knot so big in my throat that I could hardly get the troops going again, but I watched him, and he never did turn around. I turned around and said, okay, men, we have a water fight off your ass and on your feet. Let's go get it. And they got up, and there was water in every eye there. But uh, we went on across this uh, beach then and went aboard the LSTs. And uh, I didn't hear from him for, oh, a couple of months. And then the next thing I knew, he was in uh, Hong Kong. And uh, he was black marketing cigarettes. And then it just goes on and on from there, just one thing after another. Any closing thoughts? As we have a saying that keep your powder dry, man. Thank you very much. After the war, John nicely went on to become a successful businessman in Southern California. He passed away in 2003 at the age of 83. We hope you've enjoyed this presentation of Warriors in Their Own Words. This program was created and produced by The Honor Project, Heroes of Our Nation on Record, narrated by Bill Ratner. This production is copywritten by Heroes of Our Nation on Record, Incorporated. Any unauthorized broadcast, public performance, or copying is a violation of applicable laws. A news story gets shared by a friend on social media, or you catch a tweet that really makes your blood boil. But how do you separate fact from fiction? That's the premise behind Disinformation, a 10-part series from Evergreen Podcasts and Emergent Risk International coming this fall. Tune in to Disinformation wherever you get your podcasts. And remember, don't believe everything you read.